Philippians chapter 2, and if you would notice with me verse number 5, and we'll read down through verse number 11. The Apostle Paul writing to a good church, what one commentator called Paul's ideal church, and yet a church still with sinners in it. How many of you know a church like that? I pastor one, starting with the pastor who stands in the pulpit every Sunday. But notice if you would, verse number 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I'd like to preach a message this morning entitled, The Beauty of Humility, The Beauty of of humility. Let's ask the Lord's help as we begin. Father, I do need your help as a human instrument. I thank you for the assurance that even I, as I preach with all my human frailties, that the Spirit of God preaches too. And I pray that uh, not just one voice, but two would be heard today. As uh, our hearts want to be attentive to the Word of God, we want to be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I ask that the voice of God's Spirit would speak firmly and clearly to us and that there would be nothing in our lives that would stand in the way of what He would desire to say to us today. I thank you for the Lord Jesus. I thank you for this wonderful illustration, this wonderful picture, description of His humility for the work of the incarnation and redemption. I pray that we'd be stirred to new and deeper levels today as a result of what we hear. In Jesus' name, I pray this, His precious name. And Lord, I want to ask you right now, too, uh, that you would give the doctors wisdom as they oversee Dr. Comfort's procedure. Uh, Even as he has that lithotripsy treatment, I pray that uh, you would watch over his health and his body. I pray that this lithotripsy would be successful. God, that uh, he would have a very brief recovery time and be able to get back uh, to doing what he loves to do so much, preaching the word of God. I pray that you'd strengthen Mrs. Comfort as she is there by his side as well. And Lord, that uh, you would get the glory even from this uh, medical procedure in Dr. Comfort's body. And I ask again these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I had never been to the place called Herodium before until this past summer when we were there with the group that was in Israel. It's 200 feet above the level of the Judean hillside, about six miles south of Jerusalem, due south. Herod had Herodium built as a testimony to his power, to his greatness. It was a luxury fortress Uh, Part of it artificially raised so that from the heights of Herodium, the tower of Herodium, he could see the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. 
What struck me about it is that while Herodium, along with Masada and Macarius and the temple in Jerusalem and Caesarea Maritime are all testimonies to the, the greatness, the wealth, the power, the vision of King Herod the Great, uh, in the shadow of Herodium, just a few miles to the north and the west, is the little town of Bethlehem. And the sun raising in the east uh, would literally, as it hit Herodium, Bethlehem would fall in the shadow of Herodium. And it struck me after being there and then doing some more study, the contrast, really the irony, the paradox of Herodium, this 200 feet high massive mountain luxury fortress as a testimony to the greatness, the pinnacle of power in an earthly king. And yet in the shadow was Bethlehem, where the king of kings would choose to be born. I've often wondered, too, and I know we're a few months from Christmas, if we could bring a visitor to America, or to the world, I should say, from another universe who had no idea of our history, no idea of our culture, uh, no idea of how things are done, and we could let them witness, that visitor from another universe, witness uh, what the commercialized version of Christmas looks like, what we'll all see. And by the way, there are parts of the commercialized part of Christmas that uh, weren't necessarily a part of that very first Christmas that I enjoy, the lights, the family time, the, the good cooking. I enjoy all of that, the gift giving and receiving. But if we could let that person witness this and then travel back in time 21 centuries to the first Christmas in that poverty-stricken little town of Bethlehem where a carpenter from Nazareth brings his espoused wife great with child and there's not room for them in the village of Bethlehem where they have to even stay in a cattle stall. I wonder if they would recognize the two, the 21st century commercialized Christmas and the original Christmas as even being related. All of the humility of that first Christmas, I just challenge you in advance, don't forget it when real or this Christmas comes around. I want us this morning, though, to focus on the beauty of Christ's humility. And as we do, understand that it will deepen our love for Him and it will motivate our service to each other. As I look at the beauty of Christ's humility as it's recorded in this classic passage of Scripture, I notice that His humility was first evidenced by a decision. A decision. The Apostle Paul tells the Philippian believers to let this mind be in them, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, notice this next word, thought it not robbery, to be equal with God. The, the word thought there speaks of a point in time action. For you Greek students, it's an aorist tense, and it refers to a point in time action where after some deliberation, if you would, a decision was reached, the decision of the incarnation. A point in time where, notice as the text says, in spite of his deity, he, being in the form of God, having the advantage of being God, and the word form that is used here doesn't just speak of the outline, but the word form that is used speaks of his nature. What you saw on the outside was what it was because of who he was on the inside. 
the form on the outside was a manifestation of what he was and who he was on the inside. So when the Bible says he was in the form of God, it's a testimony to the fact that Jesus was and is God. And yet being in the form of God, notice this, he thought it not robbery. He made a conscious decision after deliberation in spite of his being God. He made a conscious decision that it was not something to be seized onto. That's the idea of the statement there, that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, a a treasure, if you would, to be seized onto. In the negative context, it spoke of a man who robbed something, took something that wasn't his and held onto it. But in a positive context, the idea of this statement is that the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding, knowing who he was, knowing that he was God, did not seize onto that as a treasure for his own advantage as something that would keep him from coming to accomplish the incarnation. A decision was made at a point in time. And another interesting thing about this word that is translated thought here is it speaks and implies that Jesus was not passively involved in this decision. He was actively involved in this decision. The idea of the word is that he was leading in the thinking, the incarnation. It wasn't something where, as some liberals have said, it was cosmic child abuse where the father made the son come. The son was fully involved in the decision making to such a degree that Revelation 13 and verse number 8 tells us that he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He would say in John chapter 18, no man takes my life from me, or John chapter 10, I lay it down of myself, and if I lay it down, I will take it up again. And so his humility, part of the beauty of his humility is that it was a decision that he made, this decision for the incarnation. But I want you to notice the second aspect of the beauty of Christ's humility. The decision was rooted in, secondly, a disposition, an attitude. Paul uses the word mind in verse number five. Let this mind be in you, which mind understood was also in Christ Jesus. It speaks of a disposition, a mindset, a way of thinking, an attitude. And here's what got me recently as I studied this passage fresh and new is that this disposition of humility that is so beautiful, should be beautiful to us, was not just something that marked the incarnation after he left heaven. But the indication of the passage of Scripture was that humility was a part of his pre-incarnate existence too. Notice what the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being, understand, already being in the form of God, thought it not robbery. Humility was a part of his pre-incarnate thinking. Some in this world are those who, from a high place, are forced into humility through circumstances. I think about... Uh, Big-name preachers who fall into sin and some little-name preachers who do too. And they only come to realize in humility their frailty through circumstances. So there are some that come to or are forced to this decision. 
When we think about humility and we think about all that was known or called God in the first century, and we think about the beauty of the humility of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, that humility marked him. It was a disposition in his mind, a way of thinking before he ever took upon himself human flesh. We contrast that to all that was called God in the first century Greek and Roman pantheons where these gods were so often self-serving and self-centered and would occasionally demonstrate benevolence. But our Lord models and was characterized by the disposition of humility even before he came. We ask ourselves, how could that be humility in Christ pre-incarnate? There's really only one explanation that I can think of, and it's wrapped up in one word. How could he, the second person of the Trinity, before he ever put upon himself a robe of human flesh to come in the incarnation to accomplish the work of redemption, how could he be humble or demonstrate humility before he ever even came? And there's only one word that I can think of to describe it, and it's love. Love. When you think about the meta-narrative, as some have called it, the big story of the Scripture, God created a perfect earth, and He made mankind as an overflow of His love. Twice, John would say in 1 John, God is love. By the way, just a side note, the statement that God is love, I believe, is a tremendous testament to the Trinity. You can't have love if you only have one person. There have to be multiple people in order for there to be love. So the statement that God is love is a testimony to the Trinity. But God, out of the overflow of his love, not because he needed fellowship, but just as a further manifestation of his love and his glory, made a perfect earth for human inhabitation and then put man on there for the joy of fellowship with man. And right out of the gate, man blew it. So you think about creation, that beginning point of the big story of picture. But then right out of the gate, the fall. And yet from Genesis 3.15, somebody has said this, that the Bible is really the story of the lengths to which God in love is willing to go to redeem his creation back to himself. It's all a connected story. From the choice of Abraham to come out of the year of Chaldees that through his seed and the promises of Genesis 12 all the way through his descendant Jacob or Israel and his son and the fourth son of Israel, a man named Judah through whom Shiloh would come and where the kings would come from through the monarchy and all of the history of the nation of Israel all the way down to the coming of Messiah. It's the scarlet thread of redemption that has one driving force behind it and it is love. The love of God in Christ Jesus. So how can we explain humility in the pre-incarnate Christ? Love. By the way, Luke chapter 12 tells us that in the end times, the millennial kingdom, after the church as the bride has been married to the great bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the feasting that we're going to do in the millennial kingdom, that Jesus as the great bridegroom will gird himself and serve. Luke chapter 12. 
So as we focus on the beauty of Christ's humility, it was a decision that was rooted in a disposition. Now stick with me. I'm laying a theological foundation for a very practical conclusion. A decision rooted in a disposition that led to action. And so the beauty of humility we see also in the descent of Christ, the action of His coming down, of His going low. The word humble that is used in this passage when it speaks of Christ humbling Himself literally means to bring down to the level of all the surrounding territory or ground. And so the beauty of Christ's humility was His descent, the action of coming down We can see the word descent in the word condescension. What condescension? Bringing us redemption. That in the dead of night, not one faint hope in sight. God, gracious, tender, laid aside His splendor, stooping to woo, to win, to save your soul and mine. There are several actions in the passage that describe this descent The Bible tells us that Jesus made himself of no reputation. This is the Greek word kenosis or kanao, which speaks of the emptying. To be sure, as you've heard before, he did not empty himself of his divine attributes or he would have ceased to be God. And that's an important point to make. So in making himself of no reputation and emptying himself, as the word is, What does that mean if he did not empty himself of his divine attributes? We could see two different aspects of this. That is, he set aside temporarily the visible manifestation of his glory. Veiled it in human flesh for the days of his flesh, for the time that he was on earth. Once, if you would, on the Mount of Transfiguration, that divine glory burst through the veil of his human flesh. And then in his miracles, in his words, his glory would be manifested But the visible manifestation of His glory that would have characterized Him in heaven before the incarnation was temporarily set aside. And then as I've thought about it, I've also remembered what Dr. Surrett used to say, that He also, for the sake of modeling submission in His his humanity, He limited the independent use of His attributes. He submitted those to the Father. And so he made himself of no reputation by setting some things aside, the visible manifestation of his glory and the independent use of his attributes. But notice this as well. The subtraction, in a certain sense, was an addition. Because in making himself of no reputation, the Bible tells us that he took upon him the form of a servant. I want you to notice the word form in verse number 7. Not only is it the exact same English word, but it's the exact same Greek word that Paul uses in verse number 6 to describe Jesus being the very nature of God Himself. And now we see Him taking on Himself the form, the nature of a servant. An additional nature... He became the God-man. One man said years ago, uh, remaining what he ever had been, God, he became what he never had been, the God-man, ever to remain the same. Now, let me just give you just a side note here as far as the testimony of the humility, the beauty of the humility of Christ. You understand that when he, at the incarnation, 
took upon himself in humility and out of love for you and me, took upon himself that human body, he entered into a state which he has not removed himself from to go back to what he was before. And he will forever be the God-man as a testimony of his love for you and me. He'll never go back to, in a sense, what he was before. But he took upon himself a body, what in a certain sense is a limitation, in order to accomplish the work of redemption. He took upon himself an additional nature. And by the way, the form of the servant, the nature of the servant is the Greek word doulos, the lowest form of service. Submission of the will to the will of another, no rights of your own. And he did that for us. And then the Bible tells us a third action in this descent. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. A third action, he humbled himself. And he was active in all three of these. He humbled himself. He stepped down, 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 brought himself down to the level of all that was around him. I want you to think of this. It was humility enough from a human perspective that deity would take on humanity. That he would leave heaven to come to earth. That he would leave the glory to have no reputation. From a human perspective, I would say that is the height of, if I can use that terminology, the height of, the, the, the apex of humility. And yet the text says that the humility of Christ went even further than that. Notice this. Not only did he come from heaven to earth when he stepped off of his royal throne, the visible manifestation, took upon himself a human nature, humbled himself, but notice this, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. It doesn't just say leaving heaven, he humbled himself, but even once he entered human existence, he humbled himself even further. Not just heaven to earth, not just deity to humanity, not just glory to no reputation. It would have been humility if he would have left the throne of heaven to come to be the Caesar of Rome. That would have been humility. But our Lord went even further. He was made as a Jew, not a Roman. The Romans were the dominant ones of the day, the Jews, the oppressed ones. The despised ones. And then among the Jewish people, he was not made Judean, the elite upper class in the nation of Israel, but he came as a Galilean. And then we had the opportunity when we were in Israel to stay in Tiberias and to see Capernaum, both coastal towns that would have had a higher status in Galilee. And yet Jesus as a Galilean, didn't come from Capernaum, though he would eventually headquarter his earthly ministry there. He wasn't from Tiberias, the resort town, for all of the elite and the wealthy. But he was from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And then as the son of a carpenter, not the upper class, 
He came from riches to abject poverty. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That ye through his poverty might be rich. So that Jesus himself would say, The foxes of the field have dens, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he didn't come as a mature man. He went through the full experience of humanity. Possessed in a human embryo, conceived in Mary's womb, through the nine months of gestation, the travail of the birth process, and then the complete dependence of being a human baby carried in the arms of his mother. I'm reminded of the words of the songwriter David Atkinson. Watch, he said, watch the creature nurse creator. So he didn't just condescend from heaven to earth, but even, the Bible says, being found in fashion. In the scheme of human existence, he humbled himself. The humility took him even further. One of the beauties of that humility is he becomes the poorest of the poor as a testimony that he is the Savior of all mankind. It is challenging to me and convicting that even in its physical posture, humility is often demonstrated by the necessity to go low. You cannot stoop to tie a little child's shoe, or you cannot tie a little child's shoe without stooping at their feet. You ever notice that you can't empty the trash without bending over? Or what about the fact that you can't clean a toilet without getting on your knees? You can't stoop to fever, wipe a fevered brow without going low. You can't wash feet without going low. The beauty of the humility of Christ is that it was a decision that was rooted in a disposition that characterized him even before he put upon himself a robe of human flesh that led to an action, descending, condescending. But we're not finished. The Bible tells us that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Decision rooted in a disposition that brought about the action of his descent, his condescension for the purpose of death. How far the descent of his humility brought him. When we think about death, we remember, first of all, that it is not an end. Death, by definition, is a separation. And so for Christ to experience death meant that for an agonizing period of time, he was separated from his Father for you and for me. Separated for an agonizing period of time so that you and I need not be separated from God forever. It strikes me, too, that the Bible speaks, Paul speaks here, of the need for Christ to become obedient unto death. Now, for you and for me, we don't have a choice. 
None of us in this room will ever have to be obedient to death. It is the natural consequence of our being a sinner. For the wages of sin is, when sin is finished, it bringeth forth. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and by sin. For you and for me, death is the consequence of sin. It is the natural outcome of our existence. But Jesus was sinless and therefore not deserving of death. He's the only one in the history of humanity that in this sense ever had to be obedient to the will of the Father in going to death. So, not only did he experience the separation of death that was not deserved by him, but Paul even emphasizes the fact that he not only became obedient unto death, but it was even the death of the what? The cross. Not only death that was not his, he experienced that, but a form of death that was unparalleled in its horror, designed by the Romans with sadistic intent. Designed for maximum suffering, for the maximum amount of time, to have the maximum shock effect on those who would witness it. And it was always in a public concourse in order for it to have maximum observation by all passers-by. Maximum suffering, maximum time, maximum effect, maximum observation. The victim would be stripped naked and hung for all to see the agony, the time, the horror. The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. There was no private chamber with a select group of people to witness the execution. It was not done in an isolated location. We saw the spot in Israel where it is believed the Lord Jesus Christ would have been crucified and then just a short distance to the empty tomb. And the irony of it struck me as we stood there at Golgotha, the place of the skull, where it's believed that Christ was crucified. And even in the first century when Jesus would have been crucified there, it was not some isolated hill, it was a a thoroughfare. And even to this day, the place where people would have stood and witnessed Christ being crucified was a major hub of tourist buses. Still busy. And so it was no chamber, no isolated location. There was no trap door that the victim would fall through where a rope around their neck would make the end fairly quick. There was no injection of a needle in a vein that would bring about a death where the victim essentially fell asleep. There was no pull of a switch or the click of a trigger that made it fast and relatively easy. The agony began in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of crushing. My dad and I talked about it after we returned, and I said, and he had shared this too, that in a sense, Gethsemane had a greater impact on us than even Golgotha did. 
because it was at Gethsemane, the place of crushing, where just as olives would be pressed three times in order to get the maximum oil out of the olives, so Christ prayed three times, was crushed three times in the garden, so that from his suffering, healing would come for all. There, he submitted himself to the Father's will, but remember, he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The human will being brought in submission to the divine will and implied was the Father's no. There is no other way a God of love could find. And I'm glad that even when the implied Father's no was spoken in the garden that the Son said yes to the Father's will. And to the death of the cross he went. So the beauty of Christ's humility was a decision that was rooted in a disposition that led to the action of condescension that resulted in his substitutionary death for all of us. And I'm so glad the story doesn't stop there. Verse number 9, Wherefore, because of his obedience unto death, God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A fifth demonstration or outcome of the beauty of his humility is what I call deliverance. It's no surprise as I think about these Two verses, verses or three verses, 9, 10, and 11. It's no surprise to me that Jesus being who he was, doing what he did was exalted. That just, even from a human perspective, makes sense that God would exalt him. The exaltation beginning with his glorious resurrection that led to his ascension, then is sitting down at the right hand of the Father as a testimony that the work for redemption is finished. Work was done. It's no surprise in a certain sense that Jesus would be exalted as a result of his humility. But what surprises me is yet a further manifestation of his humility is that he gave you and me a share in his exaltation. From a human perspective, he could have justifiably said, this is the outcome, the reward. Of what I have done. But as a further testimony of his humility. The work that he accomplished through his perfect life. Through his substitutionary death. Through his resurrection. Through his exaltation. His glorification. He has in humility and in love. He has made available a share in all of it for you and for me. You and I are included. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 6. We're already seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. His perfect life counted for my life. His substitutionary death counted for the payment of my sin. His resurrection is the guarantee of my resurrection unto life. And it's all a further testimony of the beauty of the humility of Christ. I'm included in that. 
I'm in him. One of the greatest, and let me, let me tell you, one of the most important studies you need to make as a New Testament believer is the doctrine of your being in Christ, your identity. I recently read, and I've preached on this some too, what does it mean to be in Christ? In so many ways, it essentially means this, that whatever is now true of Jesus is true of you and me as well. Think on that. And so there's deliverance. So the beauty of the humility of Christ began with a decision that was rooted in a disposition that led to the action of condescension that culminated in his death as our substitute, then transitioned to his deliverance and ours as well. But I want you to notice we come full circle. In Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, I'm going to shock you with this. Paul isn't talking about Christmas. This is a classic Christmas passage talking about the incarnation. Paul probably doesn't even have Christmas in mind, definitely as we know it today. But the passage comes full circle, and here's what I mean by that. He says in verse number 5, let this mind. And that pronoun this is in the first position in the sentence. It is emphatic. He's saying this, this mind, let this mind be in you. This way of thinking, this disposition of humility that leads to a decision that will motivate you to descend, if you would, to condescend, to serve the Lord and to meet the needs of others. And if not physical death, death to self. The church at Philippi needed some help settling differences. And it's the mind of Christ that will help them settle their differences. I read today of a missionary, earlier this morning, of a missionary who worked in a country that was very mountainous. And he told of witnessing two mountain goats meet on a very narrow mountain path with a steep ascent on one side and a thousand foot drop off on the other. And from below, he witnessed these two mountain goats meet on this narrow mountain path. And he said a decision had to be made because they both couldn't pass side by side. There wasn't enough room. And the precipice was too steep for them to go around each other. And he said it was interesting to wonder what was going through their mind. They could fight it out, but then risk one of them or both of them falling. They couldn't back up because they needed to go, essentially, the direction they were heading And he witnessed in awe as one of those mountain goats knelt down and let the other mountain goat walk over the top of him. And then they both went alive on their way. As I read that, I thought to myself, if mountain goats can figure it out, then we should be able to figure it out too. And so we're faced with a full circle decision. Will I let the mind of Christ that is so beautifully pictured in his humility in this classic passage of scripture, will I let it be my guide when it comes to settling differences, when it comes to slaving, but by love, serve, doulos, slave for one another? 
We're not very good at that as American Christians. Someone asked me recently what I thought was wrong with American Christianity. Anything I thought wrong with American Christianity, and I, this is not original with me, but I think a very blunt and yet true answer is this, is that one of the problems with American Christianity is that it's too much American and not enough Christianity. If Jesus would lay aside his privileges and rights and visible manifestations, then what about me? And so this decision to let the mind of Christ, to the beauty of his humility, be involved in settling differences in a local church and believers serving each other and striving together for the faith of the gospel. If goats can figure it out, we can. I close with a Christmas illustration. I heard the story of a little boy who had been tasked in his country church's Christmas play with being the innkeeper. And he had one line, no room, no room when the other little actors playing Joseph and Mary showed up and knocked on the cardboard door of the backdrop. He was to answer the door and when Joseph asked if there was any room in the inn, the little boy was to say, no room, no room. And so the time came, but the little boy who was playing the innkeeper had gotten so caught up in the true meaning of Christmas that when he opened the door, he was so overcome by the reality of the plight that would have been Joseph's and Mary's as Mary was about to deliver this baby, that he said, I don't have any room in the inn, but you can have my room. Now, that's about the moment that the Sunday school teacher who was overseeing the Christmas play panics. I have no idea how the story turned out. But I do know this, that little boy teaches us a lesson. Even in his modern version of the Christmas story. The beauty of the humility of Christ. Will you let that way of thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for this time of meditation, consideration from the word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.